Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and chips and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner Ravinder awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room with a great hostess. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it. Yes, we have a wonderful chat room. Don't know about the hostess, but the group of people in there are absolutely marvelous. They always teach me something, add a little bit to the entertainment. Um, it's just a, a good group of people. It's a great way to make some new friends. Uh, so do come join us. That's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. You know, now, if I'd have said I don't know about the hostess, you'd have thrown something at me. Yeah, but I can say it about myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's life. All right. In this week's spotlight, I'd like to take uh, up the issue of evidence. What is good evidence? When can we rely on it? Should we expect evidentiary material to accompany claims and assertions? I mean, what real evidence is there for many spiritual contentions? I recently posted a video featuring actual television commercials from the 1950s for cigarettes. The ads featured physicians endorsing smoking. One ad even showed the Surgeon General approved of smoking. Doctor after doctor endorsed not only smoking, but particular brands. Camel Cigarettes boasted that general practitioners, surgeons, throat specialists, diagnosticians, neurologists, radiologists, etc., all preferred Camel Cigarettes. Doctors regularly appeared in these commercials and sold the idea of safe, healthy smoking to the public. So, is the doctor's word good evidence? Or is the answer to that question something along the lines of, well, it depends on the motive. Is motive something we should always consider? In my view, motive is always important when you examine evidence. For example... When I first developed the patented technology known as InterTalk, I conducted the initial studies. We looked at things like reducing the anesthetic requirement during cosmetic surgery, but because I was the lead investigator, it was fair to assume that I might be biased. I might force an outcome. After all, this was my technology and I stood to gain if and when it was proven to be effective. I therefore enlisted all the outside independent researchers I could to run their own studies, and in the end, repeated double-blind studies, the most rigorous of experimental designs, demonstrated efficacy across a multitude of domains. For me, the evidence required repetition over and over and by independent teams at leading institutions where character and qualifications could not be disputed. Do we all need that sort of hard evidence before we accept a new idea, a new product, and so forth? Probably not. But then what sort of evidence do we need? We all are aware that we want to hear what we want to hear, 
And when evidence comes along that supports an opinion that we already have, we're quick to grab it, quote it, and shove it at other people. Today, we see claims everywhere. The media is full of fabrications, embellishments, baffle gab, and hyperbole. Sometimes the claims are about products and sometimes about people, events, or things. We're told we can get rich simply by following some secret XYZ scheme. But, of course, we must buy the secret scheme to learn how to do this. We are told that some new pill will magically restore our memory power. But does it really work? We are told that there is this tremendous breakthrough by some guru of this or that. But that science is so lagging they won't tell you for probably years what the guru can share with you now if you'll just attend his meditation or buy his book or etc. Are we to go away believing all of this? How much of it is nonsense? Bottom line, what we choose to believe today is fraught with multiple opportunities to get it all wrong. Unfortunately, we live at a time when we need to be doubly suspicious of the claims people make. We need to do our own homework before buying into a lot of craziness out there. For me, I want evidence, but I'm willing to listen. Tell me about a miracle this or that, and I want to investigate it, verify it. And when I do, I can go away certain that at least I have checked it out. To that end, I suggest you do the same, since more often than not, the unbelievable turns out to be just that. Unbelievable, because it's false to facts. My thoughts, what are yours, Ravinder? Well, that's quite a bag of information you have right there. I did like your quote. You know, when you hear something that you like, you grab it, you quote it, and shove it at other people. And that is precisely what most of us do. I think all of us have done that at some point. However much you and I may try not to, we can go down that a little bit too. I'm not buying the us in that one, but I can sure see you in it. Keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the whole package of it, though, uh, you know, you get this evidence uh, put in front of you. There are all of these experts, but then you have to question the motive of the experts. And then you have to look at the research yourself. And I think today, right, I mean, that's an important element right there because lots of people will try to l leave everything up to the experts. You know, they'll say, I'm not a scientist. I don't understand that. But most of the time, if you stop and look at the evidence for yourself, you know, most of science is pretty logical. It, it's supposed to make sense. If it doesn't make sense, that's a red flag. The other side of that paradigm, however, in all fairness, is, you know, we scientists tend to have their own rosy-colored lenses. Oh, yeah. And if the information fits within the acceptable paradigm, then it's more easily received than if it, questions the paradigm and if it's outside the paradigm well then it's almost always going to be rebuked and not necessarily appropriately so i think we come back to it's incumbent upon each of us to understand there are things science doesn't understand but that doesn't mean that those gaps in our knowledge give rise to opening up the possibility of anything and everything and that not everything is scientifically verifiable period end of quotation your subjective experience is a very good example of that. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. 
I missed the last three live shows due to the death of a dear friend and partner, Lois Bay. We'll miss you forever, Lois, but you're always going to be with us. Our last live show featured Vishnu Swamni, and we discussed his book, Eternal Dharma. Elizabeth wrote, I liked how your guest described the difference between temporary dharma and soul dharma. I can easily understand how your duty would change based on your occupation, but I didn't like his explanation of psychopaths and karma. I agree with you, Elizabeth. Nick wrote, I always enjoy your show, Zelda. The Maverick Month made some very good points, but he seemed to say the karma, that karma predisposed serial killers, and so they were carrying out their dharma when killing someone. This troubles me. I don't think dharma is meant to explain all actions this way. Amen. Indra wrote, I have a problem with the idea that all suffering is somewhat karmic. Chase wrote, this perspective he is giving of dharma is exactly the same as Thomas Aquinas' idea of personal freedom and moral flexibility of the will. Freedom is truly the liberty to choose what is good and what is between goods. People who are not free suffer from the conditions indicative of an animal nature. The dharma of the human being is oriented towards what is good and eternal, and when bound to evil, any degree of a lacking of external coercion will not truly deliver the dharma of true freedom. Daniel responded to a previous spotlight regarding the popular nonsense, and I say nonsense, that deals are somehow made on the other side, in heaven. And and, and these deals are, you know... You agree to be a bad person and injure others as a result. Dr. Taylor, I hope others see how relevant this teaching is, especially for today's time. I am amazed at the things you're saying now. It coincides with the book I am writing. I admire and respect your stand. Thank you, Daniel. Moving on, Edward wrote, Thank you, Ravinder. I wanted to tell you since we got sort of cut off the other day that I really appreciate you and everything you've done for me. I am so blessed and grateful to have crossed paths with you and Eldon. I look forward to continuing my journey of self-improvement and growth. While I know that I have worked really hard, I still would not have been able to make all the progress I have without your guidance and support. So thank you. And please thank Eldon for me as well. Now, I bet you like that, don't you, Raph? I do. That's really cool. You know, he works really hard at his own self-growth and I've got a number of you know customers that I speak to semi-regularly and it you know it that they are they are classic examples of how high is up so they're constantly working to be better to strive for more to reach higher and they are and that's really cool to be a part of well and you do a great job you deserve the compliment Robert wrote dear Olin and Ravinder I'm an ardent believer in the power of intertalk programs for more than two years now Angelica wrote, all I can say is that your intertalk programs are terrific and beneficial to me and my clients. Jelly wrote, I bought your book and used your intertalk programs very successfully to the point of my clients keeping your materials. You saved my sanity while in the hospital playing your intertalk CDs. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by emailing me at eldon at eldontaylor.com. That's E-L-D-O-N at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Please keep them coming. Now to this week's show, Surviving Death with author author, <laughs> author, with author Leslie Kane. Her copy reads, and I quote, While exploring the evidence for an afterlife, 
I witnessed some unbelievable things that are not supposed to be possible in our material world. Despite my initial doubt, I came to realize that there are still aspects of nature which are neither understood or accepted either, even though their reality has profound implications for understanding the true breadth of the human psyche and its possible continuity after death. So begins Leslie Kane's impeccably researched investigation, revealing stunning and wide-ranging evidence suggesting that consciousness survives death. Close quote. Leslie Kane is the New York Times best-selling author of UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. As an independent investigative journalist, she has been published widely in dozens of newspapers and magazines here and abroad, such as the Boston Globe, The Nation, The Globe and Mail, The International Herald Tribune, and so forth. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Leslie Kane. Hi, Eldon. It's great to be with you. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, it's indeed my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this show, and your subject is one of my very favorite subjects to discuss. But before we get into that, you know, for our audience, we like to know three things on this show. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And then, of course, how do we use it? So let's begin by telling us, if you will, what motivated you to research such things as diverse, I see as diverse, perhaps you don't, as UFOs and the afterlife? Well, I think it's because I'm interested in, you know, in the bigger mysteries that we all deal with as human beings. And so I, I, although I agree with you, the topics are very different. Uh, I don't see them as connected, although some people try to make those connections, but I don't. And I think it's really more about the fact that they're just giant mysteries. And also they are both areas of study in which are sort of shunned by the status quo. You know, they both challenge the current paradigm. And they're both uh, have a lot of mystery to them, and they, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to, to unearth more information in both, both in the UFO subject and with the question of survival past death. And yet scientists don't, most scientists don't want to have anything to do with these topics. So I'm, very, I'm also motivated to kind of get out there, and, you know, uh, what I feel to be is evidence for something that science should not be ignoring. And that's part of my motivation. Were you raised religious, Leslie? I mean, did you have a preconception about uh, the afterlife uh, as a as a young person? Um, tell no. us about that. Yeah, no. I mean, I was raised in a very Episcopalian family, but they were not really churchgoers. Uh, my parents were not particularly churchgoers. And so, you know, not anti-religious, but not particularly religious either. And then I did have some, when I w- was in college, I discovered Zen Buddhism, and I was very drawn to that, and I practiced Buddhism for many years in my 20s, and kind of explored a lot of different paths, you know, to, I've always been since then very interested in, in knowing, you know, my, in self-discovery and in trying to understand what reality is all about, and so I've always been kind of a deep searcher in that way, but it wasn't due to, I don't think it was at all due to my childhood, no. All right. Let's just you have a curious mind and you're going to investigate mysteries and no doubt the next mystery will be poltergeist or something of that, right? <laughs> well, I I do have a chapter on that in this current book actually. Right, so. and we're going to get into that one. Uh, okay, let's uh you know, you covered many areas in your book and and it's a great read and I suggest everybody out there read this book. It is a is very well researched. Um but let's do this, okay? 
Mm-hmm. How many people did you interview who suggested in one way or another that evil wanders around on the other side just as it does here? Well, uh, I can't say that I have because really the kind of information in my book does not, it doesn't deal with sort of questions of what the afterlife is like. So I, I hope that doesn't disappoint your listeners, but you know, the book is very much focused on what is the evidence that suggests the possibility that we do survive death. But it doesn't deal with, well, if we do survive death, what is that world like on the other side? Because that's something that, for a journalist, is much harder to document, obviously. Sure. So I, I have but, to say that's sort of outside of my, you know, my area of research, even though it's a fascinating question. So in, in all your interviews, and, and you, many times you actually conducted some pretty extensive interviews, um, no one ex- described the other side to you. Well, that's not true. I would say that as I deal with in the end of my book, I have some experience sitting with a physical medium by the name of Stuart Alexander, who lives in the U.K., and so the the spirit controls that speak through him, the communicators, do sometimes talk a bit about what it's like for them and their, what they call in their world. But I haven't, you know, I just, it's not a question that I broached with a lot of people, because I was, you know, I was dealing more with things like near-death experiences and veridical out-of-body experiences and child, children with reincarnation memories and mediums that can, you know, speak through, can can bring in uh, personalities who are deceased, things like that that are very easy to document. So I don't have a lot of information about what it's like on the other side. Maybe that is my next book. I don't know. I think you're holding back on me a little there, but okay, maybe it is your next book. Uh, and if it is, please look at this other side. Very few people do look at that, but when when we look at NDE reports, uh, you know, the people that will admit that they've actually had a negative experience during an NDE or they have encountered negative energies is obviously lower because there's a... You know, there's an expectation that if you encountered the negative, you must have been a bad person, so you must have been headed toward the wrong set of gates. Uh, mm. But it's still, nevertheless, 15% uh, of those that report NDEs report the negative experiences, and we hear so very little about that. No, but you're let's right. Go back. Yeah, you're right, and I, I have run across those. I have, and you're correct. I mean, in the NDEs, I have read a bit about people who have reported negative experiences, but that's about, yeah. So I thought you were talking about something more specific than that, but yes. When you write that sure. book, you make sure you, you you give me a phone call or drop me an email. We'll get you back here, okay? You sound like right. a good source for that book. So we'll see. <laughs> All right. You examine materialization through mediums. Um, that's a really, you know, um, one that skeptics get on really big time. Tell Absolutely. us about what you found. Oh, boy, and that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why I don't go into that until towards the end of my book, because I kind of build the reader up to hopefully be able to sort of have some way of comprehending that this could be real. So, so, so but here we are. We're going to jump into it. So, um, you know, some of, some of the uh, material that I focused on initially in the book had to do with the materialization of human hands, of basically what seemed to be living hands. Because this has been documented numerous times, you know, in papers by scientists who have studied some of the the, the best known and most well studied mediums. Right. And uh, in one instance, there was even um, scientists documented these hands by by having them dip themselves into hot wax, uh, 
and you know I can go into a lot more detail on this, but it depends how much you want. But just to give you no, a, no, no, a do, sense of do. it, flesh, you know, the, flesh it out. I'm going to otherwise I'm going to get email that say why did why didn't you have her explain or tell us all about that. Okay, well, I mean, we can focus on that one if you, I don't know if you want to have a, you know, we can focus on this one medium whose name was Franek Kluski. He was a Polish medium. And um, in the 1920s, there were two uh, outstanding scientists. Uh, one of them was, they, one of them was a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Uh, there were, one of them was French. I've got to get their names. Gelet was one of them. They're well-known investigators, Charles Richet and Gustave Gelet, who were both, um, well-known investigators of this kind of thing and had a lot of experience catching people who are fraudulent. And they were able to take this, and, and just so the people know, Richet was a Nobel, Prize, a Nobel Prize winner in medicine, and um, Gillet was a physician. They were both highly accomplished investigators with lots of credentials and highly respected. And they took this medium by the name of Franek Kluski, uh into a laboratory in a, in a facility that they controlled, a room with no windows, uh, that nobody had access to except for them, and uh, and they were able to in those in this highly controlled environment in which the medium was you know held his legs and arms were held and everything, they were able to uh, have these things materialize beings and but we're going to focus on hands here, and what they did in that situation was they placed these bowls of very very hot wax molten wax, they asked these forms to dip their hands into the wax. They could see this happening. The, the, the hands would go into the wax. The wax would splash around the room. Then this, the, uh, the, um, the, when the glove around these hands started to, when it cooled off, the hands would dematerialize, and they would drop these very thin wax gloves on a table or on the laps of somebody in the room. They were like paper thin. And so there was no way that a human hand could withdraw from something like that without damaging the glove. But these gloves had no seams or imperfections to them. Some of them were actually smaller than the normal size of a hand. They were like child size. So they had these, these gloves, and then they took the gloves, and they made uh, plaster molds out of them. And so now what we have on the record here are a whole series of molds of what were materialized hands. And uh, they are, I have pictures of them in my book. So I find that case to be particularly fascinating. And I, I would call this pretty strong evidence because these men covered all their bases. I mean, they made sure that nothing was snuck into their room. And, they, you know, they covered all the possible ways that something like this could be uh, created through fraud. And they were basically able to eliminate that possibility. The, the gloves themselves that were produced in this way are they available for inspection are they in a museum yes. under glass they're so in a museum I, I, in a museum in france or a research institute in paris and uh -huh. i did ask the people when i spoke with them there about the possibility of seeing them they said they're kept they're not like on permanent display because they don't want them to be damaged so i think they keep them in the dark and just keep them hidden away, but as somebody who goes there and arranges to see them, uh, they can be made available for people to see. So they, you know, they're, they're kept very, very carefully to preserve. They want to preserve them. See, to me, that is an incredibly powerful piece of evidence, just as you say. So when you share this story with even, you know, the skeptic skeptic, what kind of comments do you get? I mean, I would love to talk to a skeptic about this story, quite honestly. I really, I haven't. You know, I have not had a skeptic 
approach me or converse with me about the examples I have in my book of physical mediumship. I don't think there's any way they could argue with it. And I would love to hear what they had to say. I so really they would. Duck, they duck <laughs> sideways on that one, huh? Yeah, All I mean, right. I just, I don't know how to, I, you know, I, 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 as I say, I've never had that interaction about this with them, so. Well, I know you've had some interactions with the skeptics over your prior book, and, and we, I may ask you about that when we come back, particularly okay. the Brazil film. But uh, I think that it's just an incredibly powerful piece of evidence. And, that, and I wanted to begin with what I think is, you know, look, if you've got compelling evidence from there forward, your argument gets a lot more traction than if it begins, in my view, some weak side and has a punctuation point. All right, we're speaking with Leslie Kane about her book, Surviving Death. You can learn more about our guest by visiting her website, Surviving Death Kane. Now, Kane is spelled K-E-A-N. So that's one word, Surviving Death, K-E-A-N, dot com. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest discussing the question of whether or not life continues after death. So if you're not in the chat room already, Now's the time to get on over there, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. New scientific research has repeatedly demonstrated that the power of your mind can do wonderful things if you believe in yourself. Indeed, it can literally change the brain, increasing cognitive abilities, rewiring connections, and even adding gray matter. And all you have to do is invest a little time in tuning your mind. The perfect toolkit for just that is the patented and proven effective InnerTalk technology. InnerTalk changes the way you talk to yourself, and that changes everything. For when you truly believe in yourself and your own abilities, magic happens. InnerTalk has over 300 programs to choose from, ranging from health and wellness to prosperity and success, from accelerated learning to relationships, from habits and addictions to spirituality. Remove the doubt and fear now. Go to InnerTalk.com today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor.
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Leslie Kane about her book, Surviving Death, A Journalist Investigates Evidence for an Afterlife. It's a great book. Uh, she's a great writer. New York Times bestselling author. Uh, I highly suggest this book. You want to go get a copy? Some of the things that we're going to talk about today are just the tip of the iceberg of what you're going to find inside. Okay, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas and a new interest of mine. So we just played some of Break On Through by the Doors. Tell us, Leslie, why is this music important to you and how does it inform us about who you are? Oh, gosh. I mean, I can't say that's like my favorite song. It's just one that I liked because of the the title, Break On Through to the Other Side, which sort of relates to my book. I certainly, you know, I came, I had a great time during the 60s, and I listened to a lot of music around that time, which really helped shaped my, you know, shaped my life like it did for so many people. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I can't give you any big insight into that particular song. It's just one of many that I enjoyed from that time period, I think. I see. Get on high, huh? <laughs> well, I was, I, I was uh, you know, growing up during the 60s and, and uh, went to college in 1969. So it was a pretty incredible time to be a young person in this country. I had a, a great time. What can I say? Yeah, amen. There's no argument <laughs> for me. Okay, yeah. Some mediums report bringing through some very negative energies, and you investigated poltergeists and possessions. Tell us what you found. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. I didn't spend a lot of time on it because it doesn't have to do a lot with the question of survival of consciousness. Um, and I, I really reported on what some of the best studies are out there mm-hmm. on poltergeists. Um, just making the point that they are a real phenomenon and that they seem to be generated by human beings rather than spirits, although we can't know for sure. And there may be some cases of poltergeist in which there are some kind of spiritual aspects to it or spirit presence. And in that case, it would be a negative, a negative spirit. Um, and then, you know, I, I did focus on also some what we call uh, these sort of experiments in which human beings have been able to facilitate some of the same kinds of phenomenon, although not as crazy as the poltergeist ones, but where human beings have been able to get together and uh, facilitate the movement of objects, the tilting of tables and things like that, which uh, just to make the point that there are, that, that psychokinesis is a real phenomenon and that it can be created by human beings. Um, and I'm trying to make a distinction between what might be human generated and what might be uh, generated through forces that are not coming from human beings and it's very hard to often to make that distinction but um i'm just uh, so that's sort of how i open up my my section as i move through into and progress slowly towards physical mediumship is just to make the point that poltergeist phenomena have been well documented and these are situations in which many scientists uh would say are impossible that, that objects cannot move on their own like this and in fact they can so so, this is just so one more example just, of something that's often not acknowledged by the 
the conventional scientific community. So for clarity's sake, I mean, I get psychokinesis, and I also get poltergeist. You're not arguing that they are the same thing. You're saying that they're difficult to distinguish between? Well, what I'm saying is difficult to distinguish is some of the phenomena that people assume are, are um, proof of some kind of survival of consciousness. You know, it's not that black and white because sometimes the question arises, can these phenomena be generated by human beings without any kind of uh, energies involved from some other world? Or do they require energies from somewhere that we can't yet explain? And I think... So, you know, one of my themes throughout the book is to deal with the debate between the survival hypothesis versus the psi hypothesis. And that's what they focus on is could could some of these phenomena, you know, for those who are willing to acknowledge that they actually do exist, which is what some people aren't even willing to do that. But uh, then then the question becomes, are they human generated or are they not? And if they're human generated, then they don't prove. So they don't say anything about their survival of consciousness, and some people like to argue that that's where these that's where these phenomena come from, such as mediums who are able to provide, you know, very accurate personal information for a sitter, uh, information that they couldn't possibly know. And those some people will argue, well, that 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 medium is providing information just through the use of her own telepathy and her own clairvoyance, as opposed to the information coming from the deceased person that the sitter believes it's coming from and that the medium believes it's coming from. There's always that question about the source of of the information. Right. And you have people like Randy and Ray Hyman that have, uh, you know, publicly actually played readers and... uh, and, and and done exactly what you're talking about. They have, uh, you know, delivered, if you will, they're the great skeptics, delivered to uh, an audience, uh, loves from the other side, and told them things just by what's called cold reading. But right. don't you also have that same gray area when it comes to things like, say, John of God, uh, who channels healers and uh, well-documented phenomena, um, you know, filmed, et cetera, performed surgery without anesthetic and, and patients feel no pain, et cetera. Couldn't that also just be uh, some aspect of what you've labeled a psi phenomena? Yeah, I mean, I think it could, and I think it's a valid argument to make. But with respect to what you said about cold readings, there certainly are situations with mental mediumship in which you can eliminate any possibility of cold readings. And those are the cases I'm interested in, because you're right, there are so many of people out there that have the capacity to get into a room of people and convince them that they're talking to their loved ones through these techniques of cold readings. And I'm not interested in those cases. I'm only interested in the ones in which you can absolutely rule out that possibility. And there are cases like that, and, and I had some of those experiences myself in which I personally was able to rule out that possibility. That's my very next question. You yeah. have had a couple of experiences yourself. Please share both of them with us, will you? Yeah, sure. I mean, with with respect to mental mediumship, um, you know, what I what I did, let's just spoke, there were two very, very strong readings that I had. Let's take one of them. And in this one, I, um, I well, both of them, but let's just talk about one of them. Um, I used a fake name when I emailed, I, I took out a completely new email address, used a fake name, and emailed this medium set up a reading with her 
So she had no idea what my name was, no idea where I lived, anything about me. All she had was an, a fake email address. And, I mean, not a fake email address, but a address I'd never used before for which you could never recognize me. And she had a, a, a fake name. And then we got on Skype for the interview. We had no prior contact. And um, we got on Skype for the reading through the computer. And she was able to provide, you know, 90% of the information she brought through was unbelievably accurate and very detailed and very personal from, from two people who I had lost in the last few years. Now, um, so she didn't have any the kind of access to me or to, the, to a situation that she would have needed to uh, perform a cold reading. I mean, she just, and there, the other reading I did was on the telephone where the medium couldn't even see me. In this one, the medium could see my face, but that was it. But, but she might run. You know, I'm just, the way you set your book up is you always look for the other possibilities. That's one of the things I enjoyed about your book. So Maria is a case in point. The shoe's out on the ledge. What are the possibilities? Well, possibly this, possibly that, possibly. As you winnow out those possibilities, you come to the only conclusion you can. So I suppose, all right. With a Skype, there could have been facial recognition software. I mean, unless you wore a mask or disguised yourself. But go on about the phone. Now you don't even have, you know, uh, visual content. Right. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. And, you know, these, yeah, so so the, the one on the phone was probably an hour and a half. It was very long. You know, and I also taped all these things. So I, what I did was I was able to kind of let go into them in the moment and just enjoy the reading and then, Later, I was able through the tape to take it and analyze it and make lists of how much was accurate and how much wasn't and all that kind of stuff. But the one on the phone, um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the medium, when she knows absolutely nothing about you and then can come up with information that only you know from this, apparently from this deceased person. I mean, I can't prove that it was. Um, and there's also character traits and personality traits that came through and things like that. Um, and you know, the, to me, there's no there's no other explanation for it unless it was just the, the extreme psychic capacity of this person to use her own abilities to access the information. Maybe it wasn't the deceased person on the other end. Maybe it was just her. So that's you know, it's a fair argument to make. But it certainly seemed like in the moment for me, and it was a very enjoyable experience. It certainly seemed as if those Two people were present speaking through this medium, but there's no way I could ever prove that. True. Well, uh, let's do this. Let's let's talk about past lives. There's you know a lot of uh, of uh, excitement uh, right now in the media about past lives, and uh, you know we have young children that are coming forward and telling about their prior lives, and we have some infamous cases skeptics like to grab to. Uh, like the Bridie Murphy story, which turned out to be a big hoax. After all, everybody in the world thought it was real. But what did you find when you looked into past lives? Are they generally credible? Are they fabrications? A little of some, some of both, or what? Well, the cases that interested me, Eldon, were the cases involving very young children, because I think they're the most evidential cases. And not just the cases that involve young children, but the cases in which the children provide enough specific information about their past life that the actual person who they were before 
is able to be found, you know, records of that person, that the investigators are able to determine who that person actually was and then find that the child's memories matched that person. And, I mean, so, so you know, adults that go under hypnosis or all these different cases are very intriguing, but nothing to me is as evidential as the case of a two-year-old who can barely talk, you know, who provides specific information that he couldn't possibly have been exposed to as a baby and has nightmares reliving a, a previous death and is obsessed and has special knowledge that of something from that past life that his parent, you know, that he couldn't possibly have gained as a two-year-old. And then with enough information, you're able to find out who that person actually was and it turns out to match what the child says. So I, you know, to me, that's a very, very compelling uh, argument for the reality of reincarnation and very hard to explain in any other way. And I look at two cases in depth uh, in my book of two young American boys who had such memories, and, and, we, and the, the actual previous personality was located. And they're absolutely fascinating to me. I open the book with them because I think uh, they're in, in some ways they're the evidence that is in some ways the hardest to refute and the simplest and the less com- least complicated of a lot of the evidence we have. So um, those are the cases that I find extremely evidential and, and very fascinating. Now, Leslie, anyone investigating a field as broad as um, after-death experiences, there are going to be opportunists out there. They're going to know that, you know, you're doing this. This may be their, their Oprah Winfrey free ride, you know, to fame and fortune. So you, you no doubtedly uh, are going to encounter or uncover fraudulent assertions. Uh, is, did you have any of that? Was everything you found legitimate? No, I mean, there's so, many, there's so much fraud out there, Eldon. I think we all know that. There are fraudulent mediums. There, as you said, mentioned the case of the, the reincarnation case that was hoaxed. I mean, mental mediums who use cold readings. I mean, that stuff is all over the place. Just like with UFOs, there's lots of hoax UFO photographs, et cetera. So what I'm interested in as a journalist is presenting the information that, that I know is not hoaxed, because that's what we're interested in. And the rest of it, who cares? I mean, you know, we're not, I'm not interested in focusing on a case that was discovered to be fraudulent, because what does right. that, that doesn't tell us anything. So I'm trying to call the evidence out that we know could not possibly be fraudulent. And there, you know, there's nuggets of that information, unfortunately, mixed in with all the bad stuff, you know. And so I want to, I want people to have access to that. And most people, it's very difficult for people to sort out what's real and what isn't real. And so that's what I see my job as being, to, to provide them with information that is not fraudulent. You know, it's just, it just uh, you know, I'll take on any skeptic that wants to claim it's fraudulent. It, it, it may be explained through various options, as you mentioned. But it's not I, I, fraud. I guess my question was more to the point. How did how did you handle fraudulent claims? Did you just walk away from them? Uh, did you, well, I didn't I mean, really did have you actually anybody... investigate a claim and say, oh, this is hocus pocus? I'm no, not interested, I didn't have, or... I did, that just didn't happen to me. I didn't have anybody during my research come to me and try to fool me with a case. It just didn't happen. Um, a lot of the cases that I write about are are cases that are already in the literature, you know, that have been published and um, that have already been tested, some of the cases. And so there weren't a lot, you know, and then I, then I deal with my own personal experiences of kind of testing these things myself. Um, 
So I really didn't have any situations where somebody was trying to hoax something. Okay. Maybe that'll happen down the line, but it hasn't happened yet. Okay, well, thank the God. Investigative journalist that you are, <laughs> you ask for it, you'll get it. Yeah. Uh, talk to us about NDEs. We mentioned that earlier, but NDEs and OBEs are really very often linked. And you have a, you tell a story about Maria. I mentioned it earlier, and we've got some comments in the chat room about it. So share the story of Maria and the shoe out on the ledge, would you? Yeah, sure. This was, I mean, actually the chapter about it was in my book was written by the woman, a woman named Kimberly Clark Sharp, who was a social worker at the time. And she uh, was dealing with a, a woman named Maria in a large medical facility in Seattle, Washington in the 1970s. And um, this woman had a heart attack and she was uh, being resuscitated. She was completely, you know, gone. But they had to resuscitate her to bring her back. And when she came back, she told, uh, Kimberly, the social worker, that while she was under cardiac arrest, she had been out of her body and she'd seen a shoe sitting on a ledge outside of one of the windows in this huge medical facility. And she begged Kimberly, who was, of course, completely skeptical about this, she begged her to go find that shoe because she wanted to prove that what she had seen was was legitimate. And so to make a long story short, Kimberly walked through the place and went to all these different windows and finally opened one, saw through one window uh, the shoe sitting on a ledge. And the thing that was really interesting about it was that Maria had described two features of that shoe, two details, which could only be seen from outside the window. So when Kimberly looked at the shoe from inside the window, she couldn't see those details that were described by Maria, only when she picked up the shoe. And so it's just kind of interesting that Maria's perspective from which these details were were able to be seen was only one of, you know, that somebody could only see them when they were floating outside that window or somehow Mm -hmm. outside that window. So anyway, Kimberly got the shoe and she brought it back to Maria and Maria was very emotional about it and it kind of became this interesting thing at the facility and the doctors were you know very taken by it and nobody could explain it you know how that happened so that's that's an example of a what we call a veridical obe you know an out-of-body experience in which the person is able to describe specific things in their environment while they're have no brain function or no heartbeat specific things in the environment that can be verified and uh, they're not supposed to be able to perceive these things when they're in the state that they're in there were other things she uh, described also from the room, you know, the operating room in which she was in or the whatever the kind of room was. There were details that occurred in that room, which she also was able to describe to uh, Kimberly. And this was at a time when she had no brain function. She was completely unconscious. So, it's, you know, it shows us that there's, a, there's certainly a lot of evidence suggesting that con- that our consciousness can function independently of the brain. That's what's so important about those kinds of experiences. I agree totally. All right, you heard the setup piece uh, having to do with what do we consider to be evidence. Uh, At this point in time, you know, what do you consider to be um, proof when it comes to questions of the nature uh, that, you know, are otherworldly, like consciousness surviving the death of the physical body? That's such a good question, Eldon. I mean, very few people even ask that question, and I'm glad you 
focus on it because it's so difficult. Uh, I would never, you know, my book and I do not claim that I have any proof of survival of consciousness. I mean, that, I don't know if we're ever going to actually prove that in the hardcore sense of the word proof. I do think we have proof that there are extraordinary phenomena that occur that we can't explain. I mean, this is such as I talked about those gloves, right, those hands. I mean, we have proof, as far as I'm concerned, that hands can materialize in these under-controlled conditions. And that situation I described was just one of a number of situations. And I've also seen that myself. So as far as I'm concerned, yes, there's proof of absolutely extraordinary events that can occur that highly suggest a survival of consciousness. But whether we can take the leap to actually saying that they prove survival, I don't think we can, because perhaps they can be explained by in some other through some other mechanism. Right. So we always have to, you know, we can't be sure, 100%. But the phenomenon themselves are extraordinary. And so I, book, I think that's as far as we can go at this point. The book is Surviving Death, and it, it is a great read. I, I suggest you all get a hold of this and... You know, I, I think of it as imbibing it. it uh, it's an adventure story, and it's, uh, it's very relative to who we are and where we might be headed. Leslie, in 30 seconds, please tell our audience where they can learn more about you and get your book. Okay, um, they can go to my website, which you mentioned earlier, Eldon. It's um, Surviving Death Cain. My last name is Cain, spelled K-E-A-N, survivingdeathcain.com. I'm also very active on Facebook. I have an, an author page, which you don't have to be a friend or anything. You can just come on there. So through those two uh, two avenues, I, I hope people will be in touch. I do, too. Thank you for your work, Leslie, and for your willingness to share it with us. Thanks well, very much come... for having me, Eldon. Thank oh, you. My pleasure. We've okay. come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. The views expressed on this program are those of the host, guest, and callers, and not necessarily those of KKNW, its management, or other advertisers. Contests are the responsibility of the host of this program and not KKNW. This is Alternative Talk 1150 AM, KKNW Seattle, and KVRQ 98.9 HD3 Seattle.